The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Are you tired of sugarcoating how you feel about infertility? The Infertility in Me podcast offers raw and candid discussions about all things infertility and IVF. Join me, Monique, your host, as we get real about the emotional, physical, and mental effects of infertility and what it does to its victims. Hashtag infertility sucks. Please be advised, adult content and language. Thank you guys so much for tuning with me today. Your host, Monique, at the Infertility and Me podcast. This is our very, very first episode. And today's episode will be about my one in eight journey, my husband and I. And I appreciate you guys for tuning in and allowing me to be a part of your day and to share my one in eight story with you. And I'm so excited for all the content coming your way. So I thought it'd be befitting to begin with myself so that you guys can be more familiar with me and get to know me as well. I'm a stay-at-home mom to a two-and-a-half-year-old boy named Omar Jr. I formerly worked for my husband in his restaurant business. Uh, we, I did that for about six years, almost like about five-and-a-half years before we became pregnant with Omar Jr. Um, but before that, we did a one session of IUI with a reproductive endocrinologist in the state that we were living in at the time. That IVF cycle, well, IUI cycle, I'm sorry, was unsuccessful, and it was kind of rushed. Um, We had been married for two years at the time in 2012, so I knew that there had to be something going on with my body or maybe hubby's body because we've been together for four years all together overall, and we had never been pregnant before. You know, it just wasn't happening. It wasn't any miscarriages or anything like that. It just didn't never, it just never happened. So I knew something was going on. So I kind of rushed it. I, I, a lot of times I'll dive deep head first into something. Um, when I become completely obsessed with it and, um, I kind of just rushed the whole thing. Even hubby wasn't even prepared or ready to deal with anything like that at the time. You know, we were, we were young, we still had some time left. So we waited four years until 2016 before going back. We agreed with each other that we would just wait it out, see what happens, see, you know, if nature takes its course and it happens on its own. And hubby was very hopeful that it would. So we just waited four years. We buried ourselves in our work, um, you know, building a new business, moving and such. And um, we just went on about our life for, for four years. Uh, for me, it went by very fast, and there were times that we went by very slow because it still wasn't happening. You know, four years went by, and still nothing. Um, my periods were regular. I didn't have any symptoms to lead me in the direction of, you know, there being a medical diagnosis um, for not becoming pregnant. But I knew something was wrong deep down inside. I knew something was wrong. And that there had to be an explanation. And actually, um, now that I'm thinking about it more deeply, when we had the IUI, they told me that I had a blocked tube on the right side and that it was a small blockage in there. So I never got tested again 
in between 2012 and 2016 to figure out what the blockage was to have it um, flushed out or anything like that. But it was strange because in 2016, when I went to have my testing and such done, the blockage was no longer there. And the radiologist that I was using at the time through my reproductive endocrinologist told me that more than likely it was probably some type of mucus or tissue that had gotten stuck in the tube and it had cleaned itself out. He said it's not the first time he's seen something like that um, and it's a lot more common than people would think. So that was very encouraging for me and I was just happy that the tube was open um, because for four years we thought I had a blocked tube on the right side. So in many ways, I kind of suppressed it during those four years, and I, I I gave it some thought, a little bit of thought here and there, and um, I, I was not a person to sit in my feelings and deal with my feelings, so a lot of the time, um, if, if, the, if I allowed the feelings to rise, I would be by myself. Um, I am not a person who wears her heart on her sleeve um, naturally is something that I have learned to do and it is something that has become me a part of me more since going through IVF and then also uh, the birth of my son was very traumatic as well so those two things in those two journeys uh, have made me more vulnerable which is what brings me here today with you guys at Infertility and Me being so open about my journey so that someone else can be inspired and hopefully see the light of it in the tunnel. So anyway, back to um, four years later after the IUI, after the diagnosis of the blocked fallopian tube, go back for the hysteroscopy, which is for those who don't know or have not started treatment yet for IVF and testing, it is when they put fluid into the cervix, it goes through the fallopian tubes, and it comes out of the ovaries, just uh, the same way as an egg would be released out of the ovaries into the uterus. And they want to see if there's any scarring. They want to see if there's any blockaging, blockages, and they want to see if there's any abnormalities with the shape of the fallopian tubes. Because strangely enough, we see in medical books, we've learned in science in school, that the fallopian tubes are a straight line. But what people don't realize is that a lot of times the fallopian tubes don't look like that. And there's different variations to size, to thickness. Um, I remember my left fallopian tube having one part of it that was like kind of fat a little bit. And it wasn't, they don't consider it an abnormality. It just doesn't look textbook, I should say. So, you know, there's different, everybody's fallopian tubes looks different, every woman. So um, that was very interesting to see and to watch on the screen as the radiologist put the dye into my cervix and to check my ovaries and such. Everything else was fine. There was no blockages. They didn't see anything else. So I was good to go to my RE. So I was released to go to my RE and discuss what was seen on the hysteroscopy and go to see her. Everything looks good. But then a damn bomb drops on my head. Hypothyroid disease. My blood work came back testing positive for hypothyroid disease. And although I was relieved to have a definitive answer as to why we were getting pregnant, it was still like a bomb because it's like, God damn it. Here I am thinking it's going to be all good. My uterus looks great, fantastic, no scarring. You know, my tubes were good. I got good news that... 
my right uh, tube uh, indeed had no blockage. It just might have been some mucus or tissue stuck in there. And within the last four years, it cleared itself out. I had no idea that I was going to be diagnosed with hypothyroid disease. I, there's nobody in my family that is uh, blood-related who had the disease. I had never heard of it. I had heard of the thyroid, and I knew where it was on the body, in the throat, but I had never heard of the actual disease of a dysfunction of uh, underactive thyroid, excuse me. So <clears throat> it was a complete shock. It was like a bomb, you know, just exploded right in my freaking face. And you would think that we would feel more relieved when we get our diagnosis, but sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. So moving along, I had to go on a three-month treatment plan with level thyroxine, very low dosage, 50 micrograms for three months. This is in, I want to say, April or May of 2016, and I had to wait until at least July before I can do anything else because not only did I have the hypothyroid disease, I also had to go get a, a um, procedure done with my OBGYN because on my sonogram of my uterus, it appeared to be a very tiny growth. Uh, we didn't know if it was a cyst or a polyp, but when my OBGYN did the procedure on me within that three-month plan um, for the hypothyroid disease, I had the procedure done with my OBGYN, and she found that it was a polyp. She removed it, flushed the uterus, cleaned it up, and smoothed it out really, really nicely. The procedure um, was quite simple. It was uh, in and out in one day. And I, you know, just took a couple of days to recover with some slight bleeding and stuff like that afterwards. But I was released to go back to my um, reproductive endocrinology, endocrinologist's office and move forward with, with IVF once um, the post-op appointment was completed. So July came around and we did our first egg retrieval. And we did, let's see, we opted for natural cycle IVF instead of the stimulated IVF, the traditional IVF, because it requires less medicines. So I just had progesterone, estrace, a.k.a. estrogen, and um, I had one uh, shot prior to ovulation to prevent ovulation and suppress it. So that was like 36 hours, I want to say, before egg retrieval day. And um, because I think, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't looked at my medical records in a while, but I had low AMH. Not, is it low AMH? You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but she felt like I was ovulating too early. So, and normally a woman will ovulate between days 12 and 14. And she was thinking that I was ovulating around like day nine or 10. So it was too early and the eggs were not maturing uh, enough to be penetrated by the sperm. And the body is very smart. The body is very intelligent and it knows. So, you know, in time, in the course, and if the egg is not mature, the, per the sperm will not be able to penetrate. The egg won't even allow it. Um, I recently read from an embryologist that I, f that I follow on Instagram. I wish I could remember her Instagram handle. You guys could see that particular um, post, but I think I made a post about it on my Instagram handle. Anyway, I reposted it from her page. <clears throat> A matter of fact, it wasn't an embryologist. It was another um, woman who is a IVF and NICU mom like myself. And she posted it, yes, and I reposted it from her page. 
But anywho, the egg allows the sperm to enter. If there are any abnormalities with the egg or with the sperm, it will not work. So basically, that's what happened the first time we did our egg retrieval. The egg and the sperm did not fertilize to create an embryo and to create life, essentially. So I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys who are in the journey and or have been on the journey in previous times know all about that. So the first egg retrieval was unsuccessful. And with my RE, they do not consider it a full IVF cycle because there was no transfer of the embryo into my uterus. So technically, I got pregnant on my first cycle of IVF because in August, a month later, we went back uh, to do the egg retrieval. Everything went smoothly. Um, the next day, they called me and said that the egg and the sperm had fertilized on their own. It didn't need any uh, assistance from the embryologist. And, um, you know, everything was going smoothly and quickly. So, get the call uh, the next day, and everything was going good. And so, I had the egg retrieval. So, we do the egg retrieval. And we did our two-week wait. It was by far the hardest two weeks of my freaking life. <laughs> and I know you guys who have done the treatment already, uh, you know, you can attest to how difficult a two-week wait is. But I did a lot of things to, to, um, to keep myself busy, um, you know, connected with friends that I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. Um, you know, did things with my mom, did things with, with hubby, you know, just to take my mind off of things. And actually, before we did that particular egg retrieval, um, well, actually, it was when we did the first um, egg retrieval in July, we went to the beach. And I believe, did we go to the beach again after that? We may have. We were, we, we, you know, we're in a restaurant business. We can't leave and take very, very long trips at a time. So a lot of times we would just do like a couple day getaway, you know, two or three days. So, you know, those are some ideas too when the weather is permits, you know, just to get out and do something out of the state, out of your own state and just hang out and, and be a couple and, you know, live your best freaking life, you know? So anyway, uh, the two week wait goes by and, um, I, get, I go in really early for my beta test on a Friday. I kind of knew I was already pregnant because that Tuesday of that week was supposed to be my period for the month. And it was not. This is August of 2016 I'm talking about here. I'm sorry if I didn't mention that before. But August 2016, um, I was supposed to get my period the same week as my beta test but my beta test was on a Friday and my period should have come on a Tuesday now the weekend leading up to that Tuesday I had spotting so I had spotting to uh you know a week and a half prior with the transfer of the egg the, uh, the embryo I'm sorry so I had spotting then you know that's just part of the procedure you know when they go in your uterus anytime you mess with the cervix you know you're going to have spotting so anyway I had that spotting, so a week and a half later, I got more spotting leading up to the days that was supposed to be my period that Tuesday. So that Friday, I had, you know, um, like pinkish color um, spotting. Sorry if it's too TMI, but I warned you guys, it's adult language and content. Anywho, back to it. And then Saturday, I had some brownish pink. And then I had um, Sunday, I had some more. And then by Monday, I had no more spotting. I had 
no more discharge. Everything was clean and fine. And that Tuesday, I never got my period. So I kind of already figured that it had worked because like I said, in the past, my entire life, my period has always been on time. Even if it comes on the 29th day, it doesn't go past 29 days. Well, I take that back because in the springtime, not in the springtime, but in the fall time, um, the, the summertime leading to the fall time, my period usually comes on day 30. It's something about the changing of the seasons uh, from the hot to the cold. My body just takes a couple more days to revamp itself. You know, Mother Nature knows what she's doing, so no big deal. But anywho, so I kind of already figured I was pregnant. It was so funny. And I didn't have any other symptoms other than the fact that my period didn't show. So technically, that was like the first time my period never, ever came. So I kind of already figured it was working. But I didn't get too excited about it because at the end of the day, it could have just been chemical pregnancy. Um, and we didn't know if it was, was going to be any miscarriages to go forth, even though I was getting treated for hypothyroid disease to prevent any miscarriages. So, you know, I try not to get my hopes up too, too high, but I kind of, you know, I figured that it had worked and that the little embryo was in there getting nice and snug and, you know, found a nice little spot for itself. So. I go and get my beta that Friday. They asked me how I'm feeling. They asked me if I if I got my period and everything. And I said, no, I haven't got my period. I was supposed to get it on Tuesday. And I get the call around like 3 o'clock. They made me wait all freaking day because I was in the Ari's office by, I think the last time you could get your blood work done for beta was like 9 a.m. So I was there by like 8 o'clock. They opened at 6. I was there by 8 o'clock and... They made me wait all freaking day for the results. And the nurse called me in and she said, your beta came back 786. I don't even know how I remember that number, but I do. 786. Yay. And she was kind of like whispering because it was the end of the day and they still had some other patients in there, you know, and, and she didn't want to make anybody else upset. So anywho, so I was like, oh my God, yes, it freaking worked. I was so freaking excited on the inside. Like I said, I'm not an outwardly um, emotional person, so I don't always show my emotions on the outside. So I call hubby. I let him know because he had called me like during lunchtime and was like, did they call you yet? I was like, no. I said, but you know, I still haven't got my period. I don't feel anything. Everything feels normal. You know, so I was so freaking excited. Oh, my God. It just brings me so much joy every time that I think about it. And I apologize in advance for anybody who's still in the midst of IVF. But I just feel like if I share you share my positivity with you, that hopefully you can feel it on your end and it could give you some hope. Um, 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 so that was our success. Um, and our baby was born January 20th of 2017. Um, he was born 24 weeks, four days premature, micropremie, but that's a different story for a different day. If you guys would like me to talk about my son's preemie journey, I will be more than happy to share that with you. I am also very adamant about spreading premature awareness as well as infertility awareness. So that is my one in eight story. That is what has brought me here today. And I do appreciate you guys again for tuning in for listening and I just I'm just so grateful that you guys are, are choosing to be here with me so I, I do I definitely appreciate you guys I, you have no idea what it means for me that you chose to listen and to be here with me and I just want to say that um, the entire journey has taught me to connect with my emotions in a deeper level 
It has taught me a lot of patience with myself and with others. Um, and it has taught me how to connect with people differently as well. It's something about going through traumatic situations that brings about a new level of gratefulness, um, a great um, and appreciation for life, especially when you realize how delicate it really, really is. And infant loss, uh, people who have lost their toddlers to traumatic situations or disease or sickness, uh, going through infertility, having diseases, you know, it all just brings you back to focus and it, and it makes you realize just how precious, just how fortunate we are to be here on this earth, this planet at this time in our lives. And I thank you guys for connecting with me so that we can all heal together. And if you would do me the honor of subscribing and sharing this podcast and giving me your feedback here on the podcast app that you're listening through, please connect, please share, and please subscribe. And I promise to bring you more relevant content and Get real and get dirty and get raw with this thing called infertility. And you can find me on Instagram at infertilityandme underscore, as well as Facebook if you prefer that, at infertilityandme and the number two. And you can send me messages there. My inbox is always open. My DMs are here for you guys. If you have questions, if you need support, if there's anything that you'd like me to cover in the future, um... As far as topics are concerned, if you'd like to be a guest, if you are listening and you are the supporter of a couple or a person going through IVF, let me know. I would be more than happy to have you on the show as well to speak about how you support your loved one through infertility. If you're a male and you like to share your story of infertility and your perspective as a man, please, please inbox me. Please email me. Please connect with me on the social media handles and let's continue to connect and heal together. You guys, thank you so much for listening again. Love and light till next time.